Amen. How are we doing? Yeah, it's mediocre, but sounds about like my week. Um, so, speaking of which, um, there are eight of us, allegedly, uh, who are supposed to be going to Brazil on Friday, uh, this Friday. And so, uh, uh, unfortunately, we've had another little bit of a hang-up with the Brazilian consulate up in Chicago. And uh, I spent uh, the day Friday with uh, the five who are applying for visas. Three of uh, the eight have visas and can go. We would like to take not three, but eight to Brazil on Friday. And, and so uh, the five who are trying to get visas uh, were able to go up uh, to the consulate on Friday. They had their little interviews and, and everything. And uh, we we're hopeful, uh, based on just kind of, one, just the way God worked to even make it possible for all five to, to be able to go on Friday. That was looking impossible uh, about a day or two before that. Uh, but God opened doors and rearranged some things in people's schedules so that they could get off work and get out of obligations to be able to go. And, and the, the same positive, a general positive interaction up there, but no definitive word on whether they will be approved. So we find out on Tuesday, hopefully by the end of the day, yay or nay. And either way, we're going back to, well, I'm going back to Chicago on Wednesday to pick them up. So hopefully with visas in them. So we run into uh, pray. Uh, both for the trip, pray for the team, but also pray that, that God would work in this situation. And here's what I think. I think we have done all that we possibly can um, to, to see that, that we would get visas, and it's all in the Lord's hand. And, and we've already seen, uh, I think, some wonderful things this week that have, have worked in our favor to be able to get to this point. And so we're just trusting, I'm trusting, um, invite you to trust with us that this will be a kind of a, a stone of remembrance, a memorial of God's faithfulness when he delivers those visas on Wednesday. So I invited Nathan just to kind of pray over the team. If you're part of the team, would you stand up where you're at, wherever you're at in, in the room? Uh, there's eight folks. Some of them may be serving. I think somebody, one of us is out of town this weekend. But um, if you're around some of those folks, would you lay hands on them and just, uh, just pray over them and, and pray God's peace? But Nathan will lead us as we pray. Father... We are thankful indeed for moments of, of just leaning in on you uh, when, when we have no control over um, the things happening around us, uh, when we feel frustrated, uh, when our plans seem to change uh, from what we had hoped they would be. Lord, we thank you that in the midst of that, um, you are still God and you are good, that you are unchanging even when everything around us uh, maybe is different than we had hoped. And so we lift up this this team of people to you, Lord. Um, we thank you for the, the call you've placed on all of them uh, to go, to go to the ends of the earth, um, to take the gospel, to, uh, to encourage fellow believers halfway across the world. We thank you for uh, the opportunities we have uh, to meet and gather together with them and do that. But Lord, right now, um, as we face uncertainty, all we can do is lean in on you. Father, you own it all. Lord, you are the one in control. And so we just humble ourselves before you and ask that you go before us. Lord, you prepare the way for this trip, that you um, would work out the details of visas uh, just to, to continue to make this possible. Lord, we, we thank you for even the bumps in the road and the difficulties that, um, again, cause us to lean on you. So may we constantly seek you in prayer, and may we not be anxious. May we trust that you 
um, hold all of these plans in your hands, that your will will be done uh, because you're God and you're good, and give us uh, just the faith and the trust in you uh, to continue on. Um, Lord, we, we again just pray over this team that you would uh, bind them together even closer because of this experience, uh, that your glory um, and your name would go forth um, in Brazil and, Lord, even in this community um, because of this experience and this opportunity we have uh, to lean on you and trust in you and um, wait for you to provide, Lord. We love you. Um, we thank you for your goodness and your kindness to us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, brother. Thank you. Um, I know there are others of you around the room, too, with other campus ministry groups. You're going to be traveling, uh, you know, East Asia. I know uh, at least one, uh, one friend I know is going there and others who are traveling with, with mission trips and, or just traveling home and going places, you know, pray God's safety over you. But we pray more that you be in his will. Uh, the Lord would do great things in and through you and get some rest uh, for some of you who are well-deserving of a little break here. So, um, well, we're, we're back in Mark uh, chapter 8, and it's like deja vu all over again, right? Uh, that's uh, one of the many great legendary quotes from uh, one of the all-time Yankee greats, uh, Yogi Berra. Um, but as we enter into the uh, eighth chapter of Mark's gospel today, it, it sort of does feel like deja vu all over again, um, and that's what we're, we're looking at, Mark 8, 1 through 21. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. In those days, when a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? And he asked them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks... He broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And they ate and were satisfied, and they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. And there were about 4,000 people, and he sent them away. And immediately he got into the boat with his disciples and went to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out! Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand... 
How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand. How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, Seven. And he said to them, Do you not yet understand? This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you, by your Spirit, would open our hearts to hear from you today, from your word. Lord, would you open our eyes and open our ears to see and understand who your Son is, what he has accomplished for us, what that means for us. Lord, would you help us to remember and be transformed by that remembering to live for you as our King, as our Savior, as our Lord, in every way for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. If, you're, uh, if you were working your way through Mark's gospel maybe for the first time, and maybe some of you are, and this passage has that feeling of, have, have I read this before? Right? You might even wonder, like, was there an error made here? Did a scribe who was kind of transferring original manuscripts here in the early centuries, did, did they make an error, a mistake, and accidentally just copy down the account we saw in Mark 6 from the feeding of the 5,000 a second time in Mark's gospel? And in fact, there are uh, some negative kind of critics of the scripture who would, who would say just that. Uh, and these, these critics assert that there are just too many similarities between these two passages. In both accounts, you have a large crowd gathered to listen to the teaching of Jesus somewhere out in a desolate place. In both accounts, Jesus was moved with compassion for the needs of the people who had gathered to hear him. In both accounts, the disciples expressed doubts of how such a large crowd could be fed out in such a desolate place. Both times, Jesus asked the disciples what provisions they have on them. And they have on hand. Both times, Jesus multiplies the loaves and the fish to such an extent that all of the people were satisfied and there were baskets full of leftover pieces. Now, after both accounts, Jesus departs by boat to go to another part of the Sea of Galilee. There, there are a number of similarities between these accounts, to be sure. But to simply deduce, because there are a lot of similarities between these accounts, that must mean that it's just one account repeated a second time, would be a great error. It would be a great error. Perhaps the biggest reason the critics have argued that Mark is explaining the same event twice is this argument, that the disciples' dialogue regarding where they are going to get uh, enough food to feed the large crowd there in verse 4 doesn't make sense if they've already witnessed Jesus feeding the 5,000. In the words of one critic, The stupid repetition of the question is psychologically impossible. But is it? Like, is it really? I mean, I know myself. In the feeding of the 5,000, there's also a distinction here between the the doubts and the questions, too. In the feeding of the 5,000, the disciples expressed their doubts and skepticism at the possibility of even being able to gather enough food out in the middle of the wilderness to to feed the multitude in Mark 6, 37 and 38. But at the feeding of the 4,000, they simply kind of confessed their powerlessness to do anything about this need, and they leave the solution to Jesus. 
right? They're not necessarily, it's not exactly the same exchange. William Lane, in his commentary on Mark, says this, it would, be, it would have been presumptuous for the disciples to have assumed that Jesus would, as a matter of course, multiply a few loaves as he had done on an earlier occasion. In his view, Mark clearly understands and understood that there were two separate occasions when Jesus miraculously fed a multitude. There are similarities for sure, but there are also differences, differences in these accounts. Here in Mark 8, the crowd was with Jesus for three days instead of one day in Mark 6. Here there are seven loaves of bread instead of five. In the feeding of the 5,000, there were 12 baskets left over, but at this feeding of the 4,000, there are seven baskets. And these baskets are not even the same. It's not the same word for basket. In fact, it it describes smaller baskets, Jewish kind of baskets, in the first account of the 5,000. But here, these are like hamper-sized baskets. It's different number, different kind of basket. In Mark 6, Mark employs a generic Greek word for fish, whereas here in Mark 8, the word used refers specifically to sardines. Probably because the feeding of the 4,000 takes place in a predominantly Gentile area that was known for its trade in that type of fish. And then there is the difference of the numbers of the people that were fed. Mark 6, we're told that there are 5,000 men who are fed with additional women and children, meaning there were likely up to fifteen to 20,000 people altogether for that feeding. But here in Mark 8, the number is 4,000. 4,000 people, an inclusive number of men women, and children all together. But of course, the slam dunk case closed evidence that this is not the same account repeated twice comes in verses 19 and 20 that we just read when Jesus himself mentions both feedings distinctly in a single discussion with his disciples. With a deeper look, it also seems clear that beyond the numbers, the makeup of the crowds was vastly different. In Matthew 6, there are so many allusions to the Israelites and their time in the wilderness before entering the promised land. And Jesus, because Jesus was speaking to a predominantly Jewish crowd. But here in Mark 8, Jesus is feeding the 4,000 in the Decapolis, which was a predominantly Gentile area. Meaning that this is a predominantly Gentile crowd. An entirely different kind of crowd that needed to be exposed to this great miracle and its implications as well. Besides, the disciples needed the experience of both of these miracles because of their dullness in a lot of ways, as we'll see in the text, right? To continue their own growth in understanding who Jesus is, why he has come. And any educator in the room knows that repetition is a great tool for learning, right? For helping someone to learn. One go-round wasn't enough for the disciples, They needed another go-round. Mark is showing us Jesus' desire for them to grab a hold, to grow, to learn, to come to a clear understanding of who he is and what he has done, what he is here to do. As we dig into this passage, it also helps you and I grow in our understanding of Jesus. If we will look and listen and think on what is here in these feedings, we can see the self-revelation of Jesus. The self-revelation of Jesus. Jesus is telling us about who he is in these miraculous feedings. In the first feeding, we looked at a few weeks back, the feeding of the 5,000 with the Jewish crowd. There are all these illusions that, that Jesus wants us to understand that he is the bread of life. He is the bread of life. With all that language of of the wilderness and and the Israelites in the wilderness, Jesus is pointing. He's trying to shine the spotlight. Hey, I am the second Moses, right? 
I am the second Moses who has come to you. It was through Moses that God told his people that he was going to rain down, what? Bread from heaven in Exodus 16. And God delivered on his word. We read this in Exodus 16, verses 14 and 15. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And you thought Kellogg's invented frosted flakes. Right? Just think about it for a minute. Yeah, it's there. Uh, when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, what is it? Right? And what is it? That's, that actually is the word manna. That's why it's called manna. Because manna means, what is it? We don't, what, what is it? You know? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. These sweet little flakes, fine as frost, right? Frosted flakes. This, this bread from heaven became the staple for the Israelites for nearly 40 years in the wilderness. And Jesus purposely, personally identifies himself with this manna, this what is it, with this bread from heaven. He makes it explicit in his ex- explanation after the first feeding in John's gospel account. In John chapter 6, verses 48 through 41, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Some Jews that were listening in this crowd to what Jesus is saying are, are so shocked by what he is saying here that they're actually wondering, is he encouraging cannibalism right now? Right? But this wasn't a random, sudden announcement from Jesus. His, his whole life echoed the reality that he is the bread of life. Going back to his birth, where was Jesus born? In Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Bethlehem, which means house of bread, city of bread. On his final night before his death on the cross, Jesus took bread and broke it, saying, This is my body, which is for you. The bookends of his earthly incarnation point to the truth about Jesus. He is the bread of life. And understanding this would would open the disciples to understanding Jesus, to understanding all of his provision for his people, what he has come to be. He is God in the flesh. It it explains his omnipotent power, his his abilities to heal and and, and multiply this food out of nothing. That, That he is the bread of life explains everything about his life and mission. The image of the bread even points, the the bread broken even points forward to his suffering, where his body would be broken in our place. In the second feeding, though, Jesus is showing us that he's not just the bread of the life, bread of life for the Jews. He's the bread of life for everyone, for the Gentiles. Also, for the Gentiles. There's additional evidence here, other than just the fact that that we, we understand that this is happening in the Decapolis, that this is a predominantly Gentile crowd. Right? Primarily, this is seen in Jesus praying twice for the food. If you look at verses 6 and 7 with me. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. He took the seven loaves, having given thanks. He broke them and gave them to his disciples and sat before the people. And they, and they set them before the crowd. And they had a few small fish. And having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. Now that may not mean much to you, but praying the blessing over the bread was the normal Jewish practice for beginning the meal. But blessing, but the blessing before the fish was not. It was not. Jesus seems to be teaching this crowd right here that all, everything comes 
from God. It's all God's provision. He's teaching them to give thanks for God's gracious provision for everything that he gives to them. Another evidence comes in the baskets used to collect the leftovers. In the first account that we pointed out, the smaller bottle-shaped baskets of the Jews were used to collect those 12 basketful uh, filled with leftovers in the first feeding. But these were large, wicker, hamper-like kind of baskets, big enough to fit a person into. In fact, that happens in Acts chapter 9. When, when Paul is lowered over the wall, the city wall of Damascus in one of these kind of baskets to help him escape. Jesus is making clear that he is the bread of life for the whole world. Not just for the Jews, but for Gentiles as well. The, the message is this. There's simply no life. There's no life apart from Christ. There's no life apart from Jesus. Apart from Jesus... Everyone is desperately lost. You're desperately sick in your sin. And there is no cure or remedy that you will find on your own apart from him. But Jesus is the bread from heaven. He has come to be your abundant provision. In every way that you sin and fall short, in every way that you violate God's law, he was perfectly obedient in your place. Living the sinless life you never could. And just as Jesus took bread and broke it, he himself was offered up and broken in your place on the cross, suffering the death that you deserve for your sins, paying the full penalty in your place, the bread of life broken for you. Only by faith in him is there life to be found. But this life that's found only in Christ is no barely breathing hanging on by a thread, just getting by kind of existence. For Jesus shows us once more in this feeding, as he did before, the the overabundance of his gracious provision. Once again, Jesus takes some loaves and fish, he multiplies them, and and again, Jesus, Jesus doesn't give them just like a little appetizer. This is not like when you order the appetizer at the restaurant, and there's like, you know, 12 of you there, and there's just enough for you to get just a little taste to kind of tide you over till the real meal comes. That's not what what Jesus is offering here. This isn't just a little snack. This isn't snack time in in kids' church, right? This is a meal. Like, there's abundance here. They don't have to wait till they get home. Look at verse 8. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven baskets full. Seven baskets full. They ate until they were satisfied. They ate until they could not eat anymore. Like, I'm done. i got to tap out here. Like, I've had my fill. Thank you. Thank you. And still, there's seven baskets, not little baskets, hamper-like baskets that a person could fit into. Seven of them left over, filled with broken pieces. With Jesus, there is grace upon grace. With Jesus, there is abundant life. Not barely breathing life, but abundant life life. And when Jesus broke the bread, there, there wasn't suddenly these massive piles of leftovers. It wasn't like he broke it one time and boom, it's just all right there. But he continues to break. He continues to distribute. He continues to pass on. His gracious provision for you is both all at once and ongoing. It's both all at once and ongoing. It's all at once in that moment that you come to Christ in faith, that you turn from your sin, you trust in Jesus. All at once there is abundant grace that that covers your sin past present and future 
You are fully justified, declared righteous, declared okay. You are reconciled to God in that moment, all at once. There's all at once life in him, but there's this ongoing provision as well. This is a reminder that you are to keep going to Jesus with everything. With everything. With the joys, with the burdens, with the struggles, with the temptations that you wrestle with. You are to continue to keep going to him, bringing it to his feet, bringing him your needs, and allow him to provide you with what you need. And really, I should say, allow yourself to receive from him in that moment what you truly need. The bottom line is that the abundance of Christ never runs out. You can't exhaust his provision. You can't out his grace. Jesus is saying in this miracle, I am sufficient for the needs of the entire world. And I am sufficient for you. It's beautiful. What an experience for this crowd of mostly Gentiles. And what an experience for these disciples once more. They've now seen two incredible miracles like this, thousands upon thousands fed. But the question that lingers in the passage is, did they really see it? Did they, did they really understand what they saw? And as the passage continues, it's clear that one group does not understand Jesus at all. Mark points out the blindness of the Pharisees. The blindness of the Pharisees. After the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus gets in the boat. He dismisses the people, gets in the boat. The disciples sail back across the lake. The, the, the presence of the Pharisees implies that they are now on the, probably the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. And there, Jesus is immediately just accosted by the Pharisees. Verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, this is no lighthearted Q&A session. Like, we have some questions, Jesus. We'd like some answers from you. We're just interested. We're open to what you have to say to us. This, they came to harass, right, to accuse, demanding that Jesus give them a sign to prove his divinity, which begs the question, how many signs do the Pharisees need, right? How many signs do they need? Jesus has been making his way through this region, healing the sick, healing the lame, healing, healing the blind, the deaf, the mute. He's been casting out demons. He's been calming storms, multiplying bread and feeding thousands upon thousands at a time. But as we saw back in Mark 3, the Pharisees were convinced that Jesus was doing all of these things by the works and power of Satan. It's demonic. When they ask for a sign, they're not asking Jesus to display his miraculous power. They've already seen that and they've dismissed it. Their request for a sign is a demand for Jesus to demonstrate the legitimacy of his actions. Asking for a sign from heaven is demanding from him definitive proof that he is truly from God. But they're not asking with an open mind, wondering if Jesus might give this sign to them. They've already determined in their minds that his authority, his power is demonic. And aware of this, Jesus responds, verses 12 and 13. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Make no mistake, Jesus is angry. He is angry right here. He is, he is exasperated. Right? This sigh, like it says, he sighed deeply. This is no sigh. This is, this is exasperation. It was an expression of indignation and grief at what he's encountering. He is weary, weary and frankly, he's done 
with their assaults on him and, and with this kind of response from the Pharisees. He speaks firmly here when he says, Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. In the, in the Greek, this is a solemn formula here that echoes what you might read in 2 Kings 6.31, where it says, May God do so to me and more also. Right? Jesus is effectively saying, may, may God do so to me and more also if a sign is ever given to this generation. This is emphatic. Right? He's emphatically saying, you're not getting a sign. It's what he says in the parallel account, and this is what he says in the parallel account in Matthew's gospel, Matthew 16, 4. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. What's Jesus referring to there? His resurrection. That's the only sign that will be given to them. And some might, be point, might, might point this at this and, and question this response. They might ask, right, in, in Christ's sinlessness, shouldn't Jesus maybe be a little bit more patient with these guys? But the fact that the Pharisees are standing and demanding Jesus for a sign at all is demonstration that Jesus has been patient with them already, right? That he hasn't just smote them right there where they stand, right? Like, R.C. Sproul wisely reminds us, remember, the Bible often talks about God's patience, his forbearance, his long-suffering, but nowhere does it ever say his patience is infinite. In the days before the flood, when the wickedness of men was growing exponentially, God said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever. Scripture plainly teaches us there are limits to God's patience. This is a righteous indignation, a righteous anger that Jesus expresses here, and his response is just. It's just. Besides the demand for a sign, the demand for unmistakable proof of God is a denial of Christ. It's a rejection of, of, of him. It, it is, it's an attempt to understand the person and work of Christ within categories which were, not wholly, which, which were wholly inadequate to contain the reality of who he is. The demand, demand for a sign like this is a denial of the gospel and its call to embrace Jesus in saving faith. Faith, trust, to cling to him and trust that he is who he said he is. There's no trust here. There's a a refusal to trust unless proof is given. That's not faith. That's no faith at all. The Pharisees are completely blind to the reality of who Jesus is. And they're incapable of embracing him. And Jesus departs abruptly. But they're not alone in their failure to understand him. Mark also highlights for us the dullness of the disciples. Right? Unlike the Syrophoenician woman we saw a, a couple weeks back, right, who, who was able to hear one parable from Jesus, grab a hold of the gospel promise and truth within that parable and respond to it and worship Christ and, and, and give herself to him in that way and receive what he had for her in that, these, these, or these Pharisees, these disciples have heard parables taught, they've heard parables explained, they've witnessed miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle, and again and again, they fail to grasp, to truly grasp and see what, what, what is going on. They're, they're a bit dull at this moment, right? They're, they're not quite getting it. And that continues here. They jump back in the boat, and in the kind of the abrupt departure with the, the exchange with the Pharisees, they fail to get more bread, right? They only have one loaf of bread for the journey back across the lake. And so they start realizing that. But then Jesus is thinking, about this exchange that just went down, went down. And I need to teach my disciples something. They need to be alerted. They need to be warned. Verse 15. And he cautioned them saying, Watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. 
Right? Uh, this, is, this is like, you know, you've seen a sign, you know, on the fence, beware the dog, right? Beware of dog. Yeah, and like, we're not climbing that fence to get the ball when it goes over the fence. Like, we'll go talk to the owner because we don't want any part of that, right? Um, I've seen Sandlot. I'm scared. Um, <laughs> right? Or, or if you've read uh, Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, it's March right now, right? What, what's the line? Beware the Ides of March, Right? And as important as it is to take heed of a sign or some stern warning, it's another thing entirely when God incarnate, Jesus Christ says to you, watch out, beware, right? You, you need to listen. You need to listen to what he's saying. So what's the warning? He, he warns about the, he gives this metaphor of, the, of leaven, right? Pointing to how a small amount of yeast causes an entire batch, affects a, like an entire batch of dough, causes it to rise, transforms the whole thing. And in both Jewish and Hellenistic cultures at this point, leaven was com- a common metaphor for corruption. It's a warning. Do not be corrupted by the evil disposition of the Pharisees and Herod, who demand a sign. It's a warning not to be swayed to have a belief that only comes through signs with the compelling. It's a, it's a warning to watch out for hypocrisy. It's a warning to watch out for unbelief. Double emphasis he gives here. Watch out, beware. This is important. This is, a, in essence, Jesus is giving a fresh call to his disciples for faith, for saving faith, for trusting faith in him. Right? It comes from a place of deep grief that he, over what he's just experienced. But how do the disciples respond? They start arguing about bread. Right? Man, we forgot the bread. He's talking about leaven. We forgot the bread. Oh my gosh, I thought that was your responsibility, right? No, no, I thought you were getting it. You know, like they argue about who is responsible, basically, is what's going on here for not getting the bread that they need. And they start arguing. You almost imagine Jesus like, you know, face palm, right? You know, like, geez, just, they're not getting it. He's frustrated. How dull these guys are. He's, he's frustrated. He responds in verses 17 and 18. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? It's a rebuke. Like, are you seriously arguing about bread right now? Have you seen anything that's happened? All this time, but Jesus listening and watching, following him, being with him, has not led to a true, deeper understanding of who he is yet. Not yet, anyway. And that's what Jesus is frustrated about. Not that they don't understand the metaphor of the leaven, but that they're, they're continuing to, fu- to fail to understand him. Who he is, what he's here to do. Why he's with them. Back in Mark 4, verses 11 and 12, Jesus had said this to the disciples. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. So that they may indeed see but not perceive. And may indeed hear but not understand. But you, you, you read that there. But you re- here in Mark 8, it's, the disciples are no different than the crowds. They're no different. They're, they're no better than those outside. They witness, they see, but they don't understand. They hear, but they don't understand. They don't apply what they're hearing to their own lives. And then Jesus reminds them of the two feedings. In verses 19 through 21. When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? 
And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? This is not Jesus rubbing their noses in it. But he's redirecting them to remember, to think more deeply on what they have witnessed. To understand Remembering God's faithfulness is such a great tool for seeing Christ for who He is. For seeing who He is. For finding hope in difficult circumstances. This past week has been really stressful for those on the Brazil team. Right? But yet, we can see things. And even we're encouraging one another as we're driving back of the ways that God had answered prayers, even to get to Friday, to get to the consulate. Which gives us hope that God will, will continue to show us faithfulness in that process. My, my wife is, is like a champion at this. Like, uh, you, know, you know, glass half full, glass half empty people. I'm like the glass is empty and has a hole in the bottom of it, right? That's me. And, and so I have a tendency when things are not going well to just go to the worst place possible with it. And, and, and yet my wife will constantly come and remind me in those times. How has God provided for us in the past? How has God answered our prayers in the past? How has God led his church in the past? How has he been working in all these different ways? Remembering God's faithfulness is a great tool for seeing, who, for seeing Christ as he truly is, who, for who he is and for what he's done. That's what Jesus is doing here. When the 5,000 were fed, there are 12 baskets left, which with that Jewish crowd is, is symbolic of God's full provision in Christ for the 12 tribes of Israel, for all of Israel. And, and when the 4,000 were fed, seven baskets we're left over. The number seven in the Bible, symbolic of fullness and completion. In other words, Jesus is pointing these feedings as memorials of the reality that he is the bread of life for the whole world. He's sufficient for the needs of every human being. The final word that Jesus gives in verse 21 should not just be understood as a rebuke only, but also as a word of hope. The key is the word yet. It appears a couple times there in this last passage, part of the passage. Do you not yet understand right? you won't always be here is what he's telling them by God's grace in time the disciples will grow to see and to understand by the power of the Holy Spirit their, their hearts their hard hearts will be softened and the reality is that for all of us apart from the work of the Spirit in our lives our hearts are hardened to the gospel we can't hear it we can't see Jesus for who he truly is apart from his grace apart from his spirit renewing our hearts enlivening our hearts enabling us to cling to him in faith my question is today where is your heart where is your heart at today are you demanding Jesus to prove himself to you are you standing there waiting for him to give you the definitive sign and if he won't you won't have any part with him does his word pass by you? Do you see it again and again, but you just can't you know, grab a hold of it? You can't grasp it? Are your eyes open? Are your ears attentive? Are you thinking? Are you remembering what you have seen, what you have read in God's word? My prayer is that you would stare at Jesus, at his cross. Right? You think on all that he said, all that he's done, and by God's grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, your heart would be softened. Your eyes would be open. Your ears would be open to see, to hear, to understand who Jesus is, what he has done for you, what he is inviting you into, what he is calling you to. And that you would not be able to do anything but just run and cling to him all the more deeply. When Jesus 
fed the 5,000, the 4,000. He took bread, he blessed it, and he broke it. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, he broke it. On the cross, Jesus, the bread of life, he blessed those who, who were crucifying him, and he broke himself. As we come to the Lord's table today to share in the supper, remembering his body that was broken, his blood that was shed in our place for our sins, may we see the bread of life broken for us, that we might find life in him. That we might come to a greater understanding, a greater worship and, and appreciation of the Lord and what he has done. Believers, you're invited to come forward in just a moment and share in this meal. To, to break off a piece of the bread, to dip it in the cup. We offer juice and wine to take as your conscience leads. The wine is in the glasses marked with uh, twine or string. But if you're not a, a believer in Christ, this is, a, this is a meal that's reserved for Christians. And you don't want to take a symbol without first understanding and taking the real thing. And so this is, a, this is a moment for you to take Christ, to take hold of Christ, to see him, but stare at him, look at what he's done for you, and grab hold of him in faith, and find life in him. There'll be pastors, prayer responders out here, we'd love to visit with you, we'd love to pray with you about anything that's going on in your life. But by God's grace, by the power of God's spirit, may we all be softened today. Our, our hearts soften, your minds open to see Jesus for who he is, to understand what he's done and accomplished for you in his life, death, and resurrection. And may you be empowered to confess and believe that he is the Christ, the son of the living God. And may you cling to him all the more tightly as your savior and your king today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this, this time to gather and to worship and to dig into your word. Lord, help us to remember. Help us to keep remembering. We are so forgetful. We ourselves are so dull, Lord, on our own. By your grace, by your spirit, would you help us to see? Would you help us to hear? Would you help us to to remember who you are, Jesus? What you've done. What you continue to do in our lives. May we be moved by your faithfulness to be ever more faithful in our love for you, in, our, in living our lives sold out for your gospel, inviting others into that, Lord. May you have your way in our lives for your glory, for our joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.